0: Thank you so much for that beautiful song. What a great encouragement to all of us today. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the, uh, the gospel of John here. And this morning, we're going to get into the story of Lazarus. And so I'm excited to kind of open up this chapter to you. We'll be able to just kind of get started this morning, and then uh, we'll continue our way here for the next few weeks. Uh, but I'm excited about sharing with you this morning. The title of the sermon is A Love Greater Than Death. Uh, love greater than death. If you're taking notes, there is an outline for you there in the bulletin, and you're welcome to fill in some blanks as we work our way through. Today, I'm going to read John 11, 1 through 16, but uh, we're not going to make it all the way through the entire passage today, but we'll get as far as we can and then continue again next week. So John chapter 11, verse 1, here's what John, the author, writes. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning and we pray for your light to shine through your word. We're grateful that we are able to surrender it all only because Jesus is more beautiful and more satisfying than anything this world can offer. And so as we think about life and death, as we think about the story of Lazarus, as we think about the teaching of our Lord Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be humbled today, that our ears would be open today, that our lives would be changed today, because of the sitting under the preaching of the word, the work of the spirit in our hearts would bring forth fruit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, maybe you've heard of that preacher of the old school. The truth is that he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the whole world is his congregation. Who is this man? He travels the globe. He actually speaks in every language. He visits the poor, but he also calls upon the rich. On any given day, you could find him preaching to masses in a metropolis, or you could also find him preaching to a single person in the uttermost parts of the earth. He gives his sermon to people of every religion and to people of no religion at all. Uh, The subject of his sermon is interesting because it's always the same. He is what some would call the most eloquent preacher, stirring feelings which certainly no other preacher can and bringing tears to the eyes that never weep. The arguments of this particular preacher no one can refuse, nor has there been any heart that has remained unmoved by the subject of his appeals. What is interesting about this particular individual is that he shatters life with his message. The truth is Most people hate him, everyone fears him, and all will eventually one day apply his message. His name is death. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every graveyard was once his congregation. And one day the truth is that every one of us here in this room this morning will face this truth of our death if the Lord should tarry. Right? Every age and every heart struggles with the finality of the grave and the incomprehensibility of death. It, it is an inevitable truth and reality that we all must live with every day. One day you will die. But I have good news for you this morning. The Bible tells us in First Corinthians chapter 15 that the last enemy that has been destroyed is death. The Bible also says in this same chapter, a chapter on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, that all things have been put under the subjection of Christ's feet, and that includes death. The Bible says that death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here in John 11, we're going to read about Lazarus' death and how no one could deliver him except Jesus himself. And in the presence of death, the wisest and the richest and the most mighty among men have to confess their utter helplessness. This is the most suitable background for Jesus to show himself in this chapter as the resurrection and the life. And when we're facing our own death, or the death of a loved one, we would be wise to spare no expense to obtain the best medical care. When when we love the sick, we would uh, be right to pursue every reasonable means for their recovery. We we, we must assist the afflicted in every way possible in order to fight the good fight against our emboldened enemy. But, J.C. Ryle writes, quote, in all of our doing, we must never forget that the best and ablest and wisest helper is in heaven at God's right hand. Like afflicted Job, our first action must be to fall on our knees in worship. Like Hezekiah, we must spread out our matters before the Lord. Like the holy sisters of Bethany, we must send up a prayer to Christ. Let us not forget in the hurry and in the excitement of our feelings that none can help like him and that he is merciful, loving, and gracious. Well, today I want to give you three headings. I think we're just going to get to the first one because that's what we got to in the first service, service, is to show us three headings, and today just number one, that will show us how the love of Christ is greater than death. And so here's our heading number one for this morning, Jesus Christ is the Christian's best friend in the time of need. He's your best friend. He's always with you in the time of need. I want to highlight for you your first blank in that outline. Notice the closeness of Jesus to the people of this world. Here we are, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Well, let me just kind of remind you in the Gospel of John, chapter 11 is a highlight in the ministry of Jesus and in the ongoing debates with the Jewish leaders to whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. That's what's been going on in chapters 9 and 10. We are now in a chapter of wonder and amazement as we're going to learn something brand new about Jesus. And at the end of chapter 10, the Jews had sought to arrest Jesus and to stone him, but he had escaped their grasp. And if you remember, he went across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptized, at first. And there was a. This was a more rural area, again east of the Jordan River, where many had come out of Jerusalem to hear John the Baptist preach some two and a half early, er, years earlier. This is the place where John the Baptist saw the Christ and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus retreats in this area and he remains there and he experienced some fruitfulness in his ministry. And he also had a short reprieve before going back to Jerusalem for the very last time. At this point, Jesus' death on the cross is only a little over a week away. And in these last few days before his death, the scene of John chapter 11 moves from the rejection of the Jews to this unmistakable and vibrant witness to the glory of Christ. No one would ever be able to argue with what happened next here in John 11. Jesus would show himself as more glorious than he had ever revealed himself yet on planet earth. And he does that by raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse one starts off, now a certain man was ill. This unimpressive introduction of Lazarus points to the fact that Lazarus is not the main character of this story. Yes, We are going to talk about Lazarus's life and Lazarus's death and Lazarus's resurrection, but the focus of John chapter 11 is not on man, but on God. The focus of this chapter will not be on Lazarus's weakness, but on Christ's strength. And as always, the main emphasis is that Jesus and the Father will be glorified through Lazarus's resurrection. The name Lazarus is a shortened form of the name Eleazar, which means he whom God helped, or more simply put, helped by God. And in order to distinguish him from the Lazarus of Luke 16, this Lazarus is called Lazarus of Bethany. He, he was a native and a resident of that village, which was on the east side of the Mount of Olives. If you've been to Israel, you've likely been to Bethany. It's right there. You can stand on the Mount of Olives, and in one direction, you look over and you see the Temple Mount, and on the other direction, if you're on top of the mountain, you can look down the slope and see about where, where Bethany is. It's about a one to two mile walk from Bethany to Jerusalem. No doubt Jesus had stayed there many times. No doubt he had developed a relationship with Lazarus and Mary and Martha, as that was kind of his little home away from from home while he was down in the Judean area. And as is mentioned already here, there's another Lazarus. I want to make sure, again, you don't confuse him with this Lazarus of Luke chapter 16. Oftentimes with children, we can confuse maybe those two stories, but there's only two Lazaruses in the entire New Testament. The one in Luke 16, it's in Jesus' parable, and this one that we're talking about, a real man living here in John chapter 11. Let me just point out a couple of striking contrasts between these two Lazaruses, okay? The Lazarus of Luke 16 was a beggar, whereas as far as we can tell, the Lazarus of John 11 shows this Lazarus to be a man of means. The Lazarus of Luke 16 was uncared for, while the Lazarus of John 11 has friends and family all around him. The story of the Lazarus of Luke 16, we read about how he he has the dogs that came and licked his sores, while the Lazarus of John 11 has two loving sisters who care for him and advocate on his behalf. The Lazarus of Luke 16 was dependent on the crumbs which fell from another's table, whereas in John chapter 12, after his resurrection, the Lazarus of Bethany is seen at the table where the Lord Jesus Christ was. The one in Luke 16 died and remained in the grave. The one in John 11 was brought forth from the grave to live another day. Two different stories, two different emphases. We're talking about the Lazarus of Bethany. Here it says a certain man, Lazarus of Bethany, was ill. This word ill means he was sick. This word means that he would suffer a debilitating illness. It means that he had an infirmity, that he was deficient in strength, that he was afflicted and distressed in his body. And no one knows exactly what sickness Lazarus had, but everyone knows that it ended in his death. Bethany is also referred to here as the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It is well known that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were close with Jesus. Again, that's what we're highlighting in this first point, that Jesus had a close intimate relationship with these two sisters and their brother Lazarus. In fact, look at verse five where it simply says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Wouldn't it be nice to have a verse like that with you in the Bible that Jesus loves and you fill in your name. Of course, we know that God so loved the world, but it's kind of cool, isn't it, that Jesus here specifically loves these three as they're pointed out by name. Luke and his gospel does introduce us to the sisters of Mary and Martha in an unforgettable way. You'll remember this story well of Luke 10, 38 and following. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, would have been this village of Bethany, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Remember the story? And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Sounds like the kids doing chores in your house, right? Well, can you have them help me? Sounds like adults sometimes when we're cleaning up after an event, you know, like, hey, can you guys help out over here? You know, it's just kind of human nature, right? If you're working and serving, maybe it sounds a little bit like a husband and wife, Honey, you're gonna do the dishes tonight? You know what I'm saying? So we get into that framework sometimes, but notice here what the Lord says to Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. This is the story that we're talking about. It's these sisters. Again, I would say this popular story about Mary and Martha serving Jesus and sitting at his feet, I I don't think the story is saying don't ever do Christ-like service to help others. It's simply saying don't be so distracted in serving other people that you're now distracted from sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if that's what's going on, it looks like you're looking for the praises of men, more than you're looking at learning and growing to understand the glory of God. And so in that scenario, certainly Mary was doing that one thing that was necessary because it says she wasn't distracted. She was taking in all that Christ had to say. And sometimes I think we do need to be like Martha in the sense that we're serving others, but we gotta make sure we're doing it in the right heart, in the right attitude for the glory of Christ, expecting no pat on the back, expecting no praise for anybody. And at the same time, hopefully we have that listening ear to Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, because we got to understand here something very important. There are many distractions in this world. There are many good things that will keep you from looking and loving Christ with all of your heart. And I want you to remember that, that, that we need to be sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to every word to devote ourselves to the person of Christ. Uh, Jesus wants our hearts more than he wants our actions, and he's more concerned about the inner man than he'll ever be concerned about the outer man. He is more concerned with our motives than he is with our movements, and so it's this Mary and Martha that we're talking about here in John chapter 11. In fact, verse 2, we learn something else about Mary. Look at John 11:2. 2. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill, and so as we read about that, we, we realize if you'll turn over one chapter to John 12, we actually see that stated even with more clarity. John chapter 12, verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And so what we're seeing here is that there's this idea of of John is telling us stuff, as he's already in 11,2, talking about, oh, you remember that story about how Mary wiped uh, the feet of Jesus with her hair. Uh, This is a reminder that the readers of John's gospel already know about Mary anointing Jesus' feet with oil as it is recorded in the synoptic gospels of Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14. And this just, again, it helps us remember that all the events of the gospel of John are not necessarily given in a chronological order because that's not the goal of John's gospel. It's not a chronology. It's a theology of Christ. It's a reminder that Jesus is divine, that he is the Son of God. Remember the theme verse of the Gospel of John is John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life In his name. And so everything John arranges in his gospel that might be out of chronological order or alluding to the fact that you already know some pieces of the life of Jesus is for the purpose of centering on the person of Christ. Uh, the words in this gospel of John, the word sign, the word believe, the word life are repeated over and over and over again. John did a sign so that people may believe and therefore because they believe they have eternal life. The whole focus of the gospel again is on Jesus Christ being the Savior from our sins. Only he can save us, right? We must believe in Jesus and in him alone in order to be born again. So it's, it's this Mary who wiped the the feet of Jesus with her hair. It's this Martha who Jesus had that interaction with that we just talked about. And then notice in verse three, it says this, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, I believe every word in this message is important for us to look at. I mean, here we read that when Lazarus was ill, his sisters at once informed Jesus. They knew who to lay their troubles before. A beautiful, touching, and simple was the message that they sent to Christ. No doubt they believed that if Jesus were there at that moment, everything would be okay. They knew Jesus had the power to heal. They had seen it multiple times, They had heard of the stories of Christ's miraculous power. Their confidence was in Christ. But here's the problem. Their confidence was in a Christ who they knew what he was capable of. And Christ in this story wants to teach them something they did not know he was capable of. This is the point of why this is in there. There's something still that we can learn about Jesus. No matter how long you've studied the Lord. No matter how many times you've read your Bible, no matter how long you've been a Christian, there's still always something more to learn about Jesus. And as we look at this passage and as we look at this story today and the weeks to come, I just want to ask you, let's look at Jesus and let's learn more from him. And let's realize that every day, because the word is living and active, we can learn more and more and more and more. That's why we get up and read our Bibles in the morning. Not because it's the right thing to do as a Christian it's because you don't know all about Christ yet. You have not yet discovered, though it's all recorded in the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God, you still know not things about Christ that he wants you to know. That's why we come to church. That's why we sit under preaching. That's why we love to study, because there's more for him to reveal. And in this passage, he's going to reveal more of himself to Mary and Martha than they ever knew. I want you to take notice, verse three again, of just three observations. This isn't in your notes, but just take notice of three observations that I think are profound. First, the urgent nature of their communication. It it was short and to the point, right? They simply say, Lord, he whom you love is ill. It wasn't overly detailed, but it was informative and necessary communication. Notice second, they do not tell Jesus what to do. I could just get an amen right there, right? They do not tell Jesus what to do. They leave it in the hands of him who knows all, sees all, and has capacity to do all. And while they may have been thinking it, they do not even ask Jesus to come and heal Lazarus. Nowhere in the text does it say, Jesus, can you come heal our brother? They just said, no, 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 Lord, He whom you love is ill. Third, please notice their plea is not based on their brother's love or even their own love for the Lord, but rather on the Lord's love for Lazarus. So when they make their appeal to God, they're not saying, but Jesus, we love you so much and Lazarus loves you so much. They say, no, no, no. It's him whom you love, Lord. That they're reminding the Lord and articulating this concept of we know, Lord, how much you love Lazarus. I think that's an important observation for us to make here. They, they know that in the heart of Jesus, there is a warm, personal affection for Lazarus. And no doubt they had noticed this in their times of fellowship together. And so they're making an appeal to this. It's kind of like in the, in the Old Testament. So many times they requested or made of like, Lord, for your own glory. Would you do this, God? Because you are great, would you accomplish this thing? We appeal to God not based again on our love for Him. that it's fine to tell the Lord you love Him. We should tell Him we love Him all the time. But sometimes I think it's important for us to think about how much He loves us. That's their appeal in this verse, Lord. It's it's Him whom you love. And in fact, look down at verse thirty-six. This is the verse after the shortest verse in the Bible. Remember, the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty-five. Jesus wept. So that's after he's interacting a little bit with Martha. We'll get there maybe next week or the week after, but right after that in verse 36, we read, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Another reminder that Lazarus is loved by Christ, that if you're a Christian today, you're loved by the Lord. So what we're seeing here is that instead of prescribing to Jesus What should be done in their brother's case, they simply informed Jesus of Lazarus's desperate condition. They did not request Jesus to come to Bethany. They did not ask him to heal Lazarus from a distance like he did the nobleman's son. Instead, they left it up to him to decide what should be done. I like that. I think there's a lesson for us to learn there. We leave it up to Jesus what should be done. It reminds me of the story of Jesus turning the water into wine, right? You remember in Cana, they ran out of wine. Mary comes up, the mother of Jesus comes to him, says they have no more wine. He says, but, you know, he says woman, what does it have to do with me? And that's a kind way of just saying, hey, you know, wh- what is it that you're wanting here? And then he, he kind of reminds her he's in charge. And so Mary looked at the disciples and says, what? Do whatever he tells you. Because we're not ever to come to God in prayer demanding him to do a certain thing that we want in that moment. We can make our request known. We can appeal to his wisdom and his glory and his power, but we don't demand anything from God. We don't prescribe to him his work. He works in his way, his timetable, as he sees fit for his own glory over and above whatever it is that you're asking for. I mean, my friends, we're we're seeing this incredible maturity and this unbelievable humility in this request made by Mary and Martha. They address the Lord, uh, they address Jesus, rather, as Lord. Uh, another aspect of that simple sentence, demonstrating their, their trust in him as the sovereign master over all. That uh, They appeal to Jesus and his love for people. Uh, they use the word here, the word for love, it's the word phileo. It's the word that emphasizes a special interest and a close association that Jesus and Lazarus have. This is not the love of duty. This is the love of friendship. This is not the love of strangers. This is the love of a brotherhood. And this verse also plainly teaches us, on a whole other note, it teaches us that sickness in a believer's life is by no means incompatible with the Lord's love for him. Right? Sometimes we tend to think, well, if somebody's sick, maybe they did something bad. That's human nature. Today it's called karma. Right, you did something bad, something bad's going to happen to you. That's not how the love of God works. All right? The love of God is graceful. Which means You did something bad, you deserve hell, but he still gives you heaven for all who repent and believe in him. And here what we're seeing is that there are some who would teach that maybe sickness in a believer is an evidence of the Lord's displeasure or his judgment, but this story of Lazarus certainly sets the case for that's not true. There is no sin mentioned in this text. There is no chastisement given from the Lord to Lazarus in this text. And so here's what we should learn from that. We should never evaluate God's love for us based on our own temporal condition. You get that? We never evaluate the love of God for us based on our own temporal condition of good health, great finances, loving girlfriend, nice boyfriend, A in the class, you know, wh- whatever it is that's going on in life. If those things are all going great, that's great. We, in some ways, we could say that's the grace of God, but it might equally be the grace of God if that girl breaks up with you, right? It might equally be the grace of God if your car goes kerplunk right? I mean, the point is, we don't look at temporal things as like, oh, it, that's how God loves me. He, he loves me through circumstantial changes of health or wealth or relationships. That's not how we measure his love. How should we measure God's love for us? It's not based on our circumstances or our trials. The measure of God's love is displayed in Romans 5.8 that says that God demonstrates, God shows his love to me, to you, and that while we were yet sinners, What? Christ died for us. You want to know his love for you this morning? Don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at your marriage. Don't look at your kids. Don't look at this church. Don't look at your work. Those are not necessarily adequate measurements of his love for you. His love for you must be and can only be properly seen through the cross, through the fact that Jesus died for you and he bled for you that you could be raised up and have eternal life. You, you want to see God's love for you? You want to know how much Jesus loves you? If you are a Christian today, our attention must always and forever be on the love of Christ in his sacrificial and atoning death on the cross. I mean, Jesus taught us this in John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no man than this, than what? He laid down his life for his friends. That's the measure of love. That's what partly, is being appealed to here, is that Christ has superior love. Christ has love that goes beyond. Christ has love that's incomprehensible. Do you know this love today? And no matter what kind of hurt or confusion you are experiencing this life in, 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 in this week, in, in your life, wherever you're doing, you must first look to Christ and trust in his perfect wisdom, in his perfect timing, In his perfect sacrifice in order for you to be comforted. Tell him that you love him, but also tell him how much you know he loves you. Think about his love for you. Think about how he communicates that love for you in the cross. Meditate on it. Sing it out. Make it the focus of your prayers. Let the truth of his love for you dominate your thinking and permeate your heart. And not only do we see the closeness of Jesus to these people, Mary, Martha, and, and, um, and Lazarus, but we also, I want to point out the second point here. Notice the purpose of trials, as defined by Jesus in verse 4. The purpose of trials is that God may glorify the Son. Now, let me just say this real quick. Typically, we say the purpose of trials is to make you, what? Stronger, right? The purpose of trials is to make you stronger, I'm going to go one step above that and say, in this verse, that's not the purpose. In one sense, we, I get that, but that's not what Jesus says is the purpose of this trial. Look at it, verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for, here's the purpose, the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus, the perfect theologian in this manifestation of this story is teaching all of us that the whole point of this whole thing with Lazarus and all that's going to unfold in this chapter is so that the Son of God may be glorified, that the Father will be glorified, and then the Son of God may also be glorified in it. Jesus tells us that this illness, first of all in verse four, will not lead to death. He's not saying that Lazarus will not die. He is saying that Lazarus will not stay dead only a temporary illness leading to a temporary death. But according to verse 11, Jesus will go and awake him. Look at verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, i.e. he did die, but I go to awaken him. So Jesus is just saying he's not going to stay dead because I'm going to raise him up. He's giving all these hints and all these, uh, these clarifications through, but they don't really see it, right, until it ha- finally happens. But I think what we're also seeing here is there's something bigger going on in this verse than whether or not Lazarus lives or dies. It's almost like in the human aspect, it's all about, hey man, is Lazarus going to make it? He's ill. We're sending word. Did Jesus get here in time? Would he die? If he dies, then what? And it's all about that kind of focus. And I mean, life and death is something pretty important to focus on, right? Can you think of any bigger announcement in your life than the announcement it was made that you were born? Adam Tyson entered the world October 23rd, 1975, in the hospital in Macon, Georgia. That was big news. I didn't know it was big news because I was a baby, and that was my first day. But a big news to my mom and my dad and the family and our neighbors. That's big. The biggest news about you is about life When you came into the world and about your death, when you go out of this world, that'll be the second biggest announcement is Adam Tyson died on such and such date. That's why it's on every tombstone, the day you were born, the day you died. That's why when you look up anybody from history on Wikipedia, which is a fantastic thing to do, resource, easy, but it shows on that little chart to the right, the day they were born, the day they died. Right? Those are the two most important things about your life. And yet in this story, Jesus is saying there's something bigger going on here than Lazarus' life or death. I mean, that's important, but there's something bigger going on. And that thing that is bigger that's going on is Jesus wants us to see here that this whole thing about his illness, which does not lead to this lifelong death, because I'm going to raise him up, but it's this whole thing happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through The purpose of Lazarus's illness and the purpose of every trial that you will ever face is to point us to the glory of God. It's to point us to how Jesus might be glorified in God's glory. So yes, in a general way, God's glorified, but we also need to be thinking in a gospel way as a new covenant community of believers to say, yeah, God's glorified, but I want to see how Christ is glorified through God, and that's what is attached here in the concept of verse 4. It's that it's for the glory of God, but it's so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is all starting to sound familiar to what we've already seen in John chapter 9 about the man born blind. The same question comes up. There's a blind man who sinned. Was it this man or his parents? What's going on here? All they can do is focus on that question. And Jesus says, it is not that this man sinned or that his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. You're starting to see the theme. The theme is whatever's going on in your life, whether you're blind, whether you're about to die, whether you're in a hardship, the whole point, the whole purpose is for you and I to see God's glory, to see that he's up to something good. To see that the glory of Christ and the glory of God in that moment are inseparable. To see that all that Jesus does is to point us, uh, all that he allows to go through and ordains in our life, is all to point us to the fact that he's good. He does what he wants to bring glory to the Father and to glorify himself. He, he says, I and the Father are one. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says, whatever you've asked in my name, that will I do, and the Father may be glorified in the Son. So I'm just connecting. The whole thing is like we say, you know, well, that's for God's glory. And we should be saying, and that Christ may be glorified. And that through the gospel, we can see Christ and the significance of salvation in him and eternal life as well. It's not just this random or or, or broad stroke that God may be glorified, but it's that Christ is also glorified in this situation. So I would just say this, when you have a trial and you complain to God, and you lose heart in God, and accuse God of not being there for you, then you've just shown that you believe that you know better than him, and you've just shown that you're not comforted in that moment by the gospel, and you've just shown that somehow you think God is messed up, and that's just not true. He never messes up. His love for you is always seen in Christ. No matter what you're going through, or how hard it is that your thinking has to be on, you know what, I just want God to be glorified, and, and sure, I think there also should, should be in this message. There's comfort and there's grace and there's an understanding that life is tough and there's weeping with those who weep and there's holding the hand of those who've been downtrodden and there's a patience that, and a long suffering that we should extend to those who go through difficult trials. But at the same time, we need to pull those people back in our own thinking back to like, oh, God is allowing this to happen. I mean, trust me, Jesus knows what he is doing. And what I want you to see in this chapter is, and he loves you, and he loves those around you, and he has heard your prayer, and he might not come for two more days. That's what verse six says. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And so this is where we'll pick up next week. Well, why did he wait two more days? I mean, you would think, well, if he loves Lazarus, and he loves Mary and Martha, and he just got word that he was ill, he should go. But he didn't. He waited two more days, and it has to do with this same sort of thing, so that we may see and learn more about Jesus than we would ever know if he did what was predictable. Jesus moves in mysterious ways to continue to reveal more and more and more of who he is, and he still does the same today. Let me just give you this quote. We'll be done here. William William McDonald in the Believer's Bible Commentary says this, quote, God's delays are not God's denials. If our prayers are not answered immediately, perhaps he is teaching us to wait. And if we wait patiently, we will find that he will answer our prayers in a much more marvelous way than we ever anticipated. Not even his love for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus could force Christ to act ahead of the proper time. How about you today? Do you believe in the Lord? Do you trust him? Do you see his love for you? Do you meditate on how much he loves you? Let me just give you these three take homes and we'll develop them more next week. But just for the sake of having something to kind of hang your hat on here this morning, number one, the closer you are to Jesus, the more you will see how much he loves you. Jesus was close, not only to Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he's close with you. He knows you by name. And the closer you are to him, the more you'll see how much he loves you. You know why you need to believe that? Because in the day of doubt and a trial, you start to think he doesn't love me. That's not true. He's already demonstrated on the cross as you develop intimacy and fellowship with the Lord, pouring over his word and on your face before God in prayer day after day. You know he loves you. And you have to continue to meditate on that when it gets tough. Number two, the more you trust Jesus, the more comforted you will be even when life doesn't make sense. I don't know about you, but life doesn't make sense to me about once a week. Sometimes once a day, you're like, what in the world? I never expected this incident or this to happen or this is challenging. This is bad news. It's coming at you 100 miles an hour. But the more you trust Jesus, then you can just be like, hey, I know he's up to something good. I mean, maybe you're in between the time when you told Jesus about your trial and when he answers your prayer according to his glory and his time and his way, and you're in the in-between time. And in that in-between time, that shows who you are as a Christian. That reveals your character more than anything else. You don't have the answer yet, but you have hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, the more you evaluate what Jesus does in your life, the more you will see it all points to you believing in him. Everything that happens in your life, he ordains, he brings it about so that God would be glorified and you also see the glory of Christ in the Father. There's a beautiful love that Christ has that is greater than death. I hope that you'll come to see this love and experience it for yourself. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. So much here. We, we really just 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 jumped down, stuck our toe in the water, Lord, in this passage, so many things that we could just stop and contemplate and meditate and think about. We just thank you that your word is like that. It's just so full. It's so packed. It's so, it's so incredible, Lord, for us just to take the time to see the glory of Christ, the love that you have for people, the closeness of the relationships. Show us about the closeness that you have with us, Lord. I pray that we would believe you, trust you, walk hand in hand with Christ, even when you allow our trial to continue, even we don't understand why it might end in death, we want to say to you, you are sovereign, you are God, you are good, you know what's best. Help us to hold closely to the truths and the promises of your word, and help us to do what we do for your glory and not our own. Show us new things we don't know about Christ through your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.